While they're doing that, let me invite you, uh, if you brought a Bible with you or have some kind of uh, device that you can track with us on to open your Bibles to Exodus chapters 5 and 6 that we'll be covering today. Um, Weston sent that song to us a couple weeks ago, and me and my kids have been uh, rocking out to that song. If you pass us on the way to school, you're going to think that we're full charismatics. Uh, We get pretty excited on the way to school singing some of these uh, truths of God. And uh, it just tied in so well with our passage today. So I asked Weston if he would introduce that song to us, You Are God and You're Good. Let me apologize too. I woke up with uh, some just crazy allergies yesterday. And so I apologize if I'm sniffling and hacking up here. Um, Thank you for bearing with me through that. I want to pray for us just real quickly as we dive into God's word. God, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that we would apply it to our hearts today. We would leave here a changed people because of your sovereign work in our lives, because of the death of Jesus on the cross, that we are no longer have to be slaves to sin anymore, but we can break those chains as you have provided a way for us and be slaves unto righteousness. I pray uh, for the preaching of your word as I, with lips of flesh, stand up here, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would communicate truth on a very heart level to every one of us in this room, and that these words wouldn't just be words from a page, and we wouldn't just fill the next 30 minutes talking about this from some ancient historical perspective, but we would understand and believe and be reminded again that your words um, bring life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I think we see three myths that we believe about God. We're certainly going to see them in this text as Moses wrestles with them. This is one of the things that's encouraging to me that a man like Moses, who God had chosen to be this uh, historical patriarch of the faith, is going to lead uh, God's people out of uh, slavery in Egypt into this promised land. And yet Moses, as you really study him, You know, you kind of think, I kind of think of the Charlton Heston Moses, right? Just, you know, the deep voice, you know, beautiful, you know, man, this tan skin, like just regal, regal kind of guy that he was. We read this about him and he's a a pretty poor leader. Uh, His excuses chapter after chapter are just, uh, he's just whining and he doesn't believe and and he offers up, we've talked about the five excuses that he's given, and on and on. And this is no change even today. So to catch you up in chapter 5, and we're not going to read the whole thing, we ended chapter 4 last week. Um, Jason took us through the end of chapter 4. And chapter 4 ends with, uh, with Moses um, headed, to, uh, headed back to Egypt to meet with the elders of Israel and uh, so that uh, they would be in agreement, they would walk into Pharaoh, the most powerful man uh, of the time, certainly, and proclaim all that God had spoken uh, to Moses and now through Moses to the people. And so you can see that uh, the people are rejoicing. It's like this great deal. So Moses and Aaron go to the Pharaoh and they tell him that very thing, hey, God of Israel, he has said, hey, let us go into the wilderness. 
um, out of this slavery. And uh, Pharaoh answers, who is, who is this Lord that you're speaking of? He gets a little agitated with them. He said, man, if Israel's got all this time to be thinking about going into the wilderness to worship their God, uh, they got too much time on their hands. I'm going to actually increase their workload. So they're going to have to continue to make the same number of bricks that they've always made as slaves. But this time, I'm going to take away the straw that we provide them, one of the main ingredients that would have been used into this brick making. And of course, they cannot uh, keep up with their uh, quota. They cannot make as many bricks now that the straw has not been provided for them. And so they are beaten, which the slaves, the Israelites who are slaves, get angry um, with the foremen who are also Israelites who get angry ultimately with Moses. And then Moses ultimately gets angry with God. And this is the passage that uh, Thomas read for us earlier in verse 22. It says, Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to, his, to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. The three myths that we believe about God. There's probably more of these. I think these are what are common kind of in the West and certainly in the South. First, that he's incompetent. When God doesn't come through the way that we expect him to come through. When we're walking through pain that we feel is unnecessary. We think that God just must be incompetent. Then maybe he has a heart for us and he loves us and he's got great intentions. He just, he's just not strong enough to overcome sin and Satan and death and uh, he's just incompetent and he's not working. And many of us would never, ever utter those words, but we believe them on a heart level. When we're walking through pain and suffering, when we see the suffering in the world and we wonder, even as the psalmist did, God, where are you? How long will you be silent? We feel sometimes that God's incompetent. And we can be honest. I love how honest Moses is. God, why did you even send me? Second, we believe that he's ignorant. Maybe again that he has a good heart. But he just doesn't know all the things there is to know. He doesn't know how things are going to go. So he's, he's ignorant. He just doesn't, doesn't know everything that he needs to. And so he's absent a little bit in our life because he just doesn't, he doesn't know. Maybe you feel like he doesn't even hear you crying out, that he's just kind of off doing his thing. And he's got so many things going on, uh, God does, that, that maybe just there's too many things on his plate and, um, and he just can't get to every one of us. And so, so sometimes if we're not careful, when God doesn't show up, when we want him to show up in the way that we want him to show up in, we, we, we will uh, we'll start to believe on a hard level that he's ignorant. That he just doesn't know what's going on. The third myth I think we believe about God sometimes is that he's unloving or indifferent. That he knows our pain and struggle and that he's fully sovereign and strong enough to do whatever he wants. But because he's not acting on our behalf right now as we walk through this difficulty, then he must be an unloving he must not care, or he's just indifferent. He's just like, well, you know, it just is what it is. 
And I feel like a little bit of those three things, myths that we believe wrongly about God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, as we were introduced to, uh, into his name a couple weeks ago, that these kind of lies will creep into our heart. And it's the very attack that uh, the serpent had on Adam and Eve in the beginning. They, they, he went after their belief about God, about his goodness, about his sovereignty, about his involvement. And it's the same thing that Moses is going through. That's why he throws his hands up in the air again and says, you know, Lord, why did you even send me? We can fast forward to the end of chapter 2. And, when Mo, and God's going to do this incredible thing. In, and I mean, chapter 6. God's going to do this incredible thing. He's going to, all these promises to Moses, all these promises to Israel, and go through the whole thing. And then we end up in verse 29 again uh, of chapter 6. I don't think I have this on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, uh, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses just still does not get it through all the things. And I think that I just resonate so much with that because I've seen in my life God do the incredible over and over. And we look through, right, the history of the Bible and look through the history of even our own lives. And what is God? If anything, he is faithful and he comes through. Again, not always the way that I want or the way that I think, but I'm not God. And that's why I love the phrase of the song that we just sang. It's just such a good reminder for us. If we could wake up every morning as that being a prayer of confession, God, I know that you're God. I'm not. You're God and that you're good. Let's dive in in, in chapter 6. We all stand with, with me real quickly as we dive into God's word in chapter 6 and verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You see the core concept, don't you? In the introductory statement in verse 1, the Lord says, Moses, I know you're worried, but let me reiterate, this thing is not going to fail. I don't fail. Not only will this not fail, but I'm telling you that Pharaoh's going to send you out with a strong arm, meaning that he's going to be ready for you to go. He will want to get rid of you. He is going to literally send you out. You ever, uh, you ever known those people that don't, that don't pick up the social cues on when it's time to leave your house? You invite them over. They stay for a while and a while longer and... And some people love this kind of thing. I'm not normally one of those people. There's a certain time limit that uh, 
I would say about two hours. Um, that would be the maximum. I remember we had some neighbors come over after Ashley had one of our kiddos. We were still in Dallas. Uh, and they just did not get the hint at all um, when the time. And here's Ashley just two or three days, you know, after giving birth. And uh, she's exhausted. And you could just tell she's exhausted. And I'm, I'm trying my best to kind of keep things going. And there they are just kind of sprawled out on the couch, uh, our guests. Finally, Ashley said, hey, I'm going to go to bed. And I thought, surely this is going to do it, Right. Nope. Uh, they started Benjamin Button or something. I don't remember what they had on the TV. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, so at some point, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go to bed too. And which they're still there. And I said, you know, we don't want to, you know, keep you up with the baby. Maybe you should leave. And then, uh, anyway, they did. They did leave. Uh, but, but when you send someone away from your house, um, there is an actual sending. And this is what God is saying is happening with Pharaoh, that there's going to come to a time when Pharaoh is going to be so um, overwhelmed with you still being around that he is literally going to send you out. This is the introductory statement we get. And then in verses 2 through 8, we have the main argument. God has something to say to Moses and something to say to Israel through Moses. These are two halves we're going to be looking at. Both of them involve us. God's words to us. Did you notice the big ideas? We read it three times. God repeats in verse 2, verse 6, verse 8, and then even I think in verse 29, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. This is the most important part of his reply and the fundamental issue in all of the book of Exodus, answering this question, who is the Lord? Again, back in chapter 5 and verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey this voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let them go. This is a question every one of us in this room are wrestling with at some point in our life. Who exactly is the Lord? Is he this caricature of what we want him to be? Or is he something altogether different? Who is the Lord? God says, I am the Lord. What you need to know, Moses, is to know who God is. And if Moses could possibly know who this God really is, it would answer all of his questions and it would, it would be the response to all of his complaints. If he could simply and marvelously know the one to whom he is complaining, it would make all the difference, but he doesn't know quite yet. So God is Revealing more and more of himself to Moses. And he says four things to Moses. Here in chapter 6. Let me tell you what I've done for you and your people. He says, I have remembered. I mean, I have appeared. I have established. I have heard. And I have remembered. I appeared, I established, I've heard, and I remembered. He says, I appeared to your fathers. In verse 3, I knew them. I was their God. And so he's looking backwards into the past. And then you have this line which, been, which has been difficult for a lot of scholars to interpret at the end of, uh, of, chapter, uh, of verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. By my name, the Lord. Anytime you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your scripture, uh, this is talking about God's covenant name that we use sometimes as Yahweh or Jehovah. And the time that this was written in the Hebrew, there were no vowels. And so 
whether you pronounce it Yahweh or Jehovah just depends on what vowels you're putting between those letters. And it was a holy name, so holy that the people who were uh, copying scripture at some point didn't want to take God's name in vain. And so they quit using uh, Jehovah or Yahweh altogether, and they just used the word Lord, L-O-R-D in all capital letters. And what God is saying to Abraham, I mean, what God is saying to Moses, not only does he say that he appeared, but he kind of follows it up with this, uh, this phrase that I have not made myself known to them before. And this causes a lot of questions, and there's been a lot of scholars that have uh, talked about this, because the problem is, as we read through the book of Genesis, this covenant name for God, the Lord, has appeared more than 100 times. Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, for example, says, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, capital O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D. How can it be that we have the Lord more than 100 times in Genesis, specifically in Genesis 4, people calling him by this name, and yet Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3 says that they didn't know him as the Lord. Again, many different arguments from scholars, and we're not going to chase all those down. Let me just summarize quickly, I think, what, what the thought is. Before now, these people knew the name, the title of God, and yet now something's going to change. They're going to see something about the Lord that they had not known before. Again, the passage says that they knew him, again in verse 3, as God Almighty. You can see the little footnote maybe in your passage there. That's the Hebrew phrase that may be familiar to some of you. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, El Shaddai. In Latin, it's the word omnipotence or the omnipotent one. In Greek, it's Panto Creator, which means the all-powerful one. The best explanation of the Hebrew, literally translated, means uh, the one of the mountain. El Shaddai, the almighty strong one. They knew God as this almighty strong sovereign Lord. What they did not know as fully was his sovereign Lord and their Redeemer. It was not knowledge of the name itself that eluded them. This is why God is saying they didn't know this part of me. They didn't know the redemptive story that was about to happen. They didn't know me as the Redeemer. What's new in verse 3 is that the revelation of God as Savior that the Lord sees and hears their plights and has purpose to deliver them. He says, I have appeared to your fathers. Now even more, I'm appearing to you, Moses. I established my covenant. I made promises. Moses, can you get it? I've got a plan. Church, do you know that God has a plan? That God has not been threatened by recent events in the news his plan is not thwarted by who is in office and what country. He is not threatened at all by the terrorists. Grieved probably, certainly, but not threatened. God tells Moses, Moses, if you could just understand, buddy, I have a plan. I established my covenant. I've made my promises. I have a plan. You see the third thing that he says to Moses. He says, I have heard. This is again what he finished chapter two with. 
Flip back over in your Bible to the very end of chapter 2. Weston brought this out when he preached on this passage. The last verse, this is not on your screen, verse 25 of chapter 2. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. If that is not such a powerful statement, that you could insert your own life and your own trial, and God saw the pain and suffering of whatever your name is, and God knew. And God hears the cries of all those little girls who are sex trafficked from all different countries of the world, and God knows. And he hears the cries of all those mamas who struggle with infertility and have miscarriage after miscarriage, and God knows. He knows. God knows. This is not a God who is indifferent. This is a God that knows. He tells Moses, Moses, I'm not ignoring you. And doesn't it make all the difference when you're talking to your friend and they look you into the eye and they really hear you? Doesn't it make all the difference when the doctor that you go to has a good bedside manner who stills his schedule and phone long enough to listen and ask follow-up questions? Doesn't it, doesn't it matter when you're talking to your spouse that they put the phone down and they look you in the eye and they hear you? Doesn't that make all the difference? This is what it's... This is what's happening. God says, Moses, I've been leaning in. I know you can't see me, and from your perspective, it looks like I'm not here, and I'm not showing up, and I'm listening, and I hear you, and I appeared, and I established, and I have heard. And the fourth thing that he tells Moses in verse 5, he says that I have remembered. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians has hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I've not forgotten all that I've promised Moses. Much of what we read at the end of chapter 2 is now being reiterated again, except God is now making sure that Moses understands who he is. God remembers. God's not helpless. He's not too busy. He's not too small. He's not indifferent. He's not incompetent. He's not surprised, not caught off guard. He's not rolling his eyes. He hasn't lost it on Moses yet. The first thing he tells Moses is, Moses, I have something to say to you. I am the Lord. I appeared. I established. I heard. And I remembered, again, I am the Lord. And you would think that that would be enough. But God keeps going. Look with me in verse 6. This is God speaking through Moses to the people. So at the beginning, he was looking in the past. Now he's going to look towards the future in verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
You could underline those if you write in your Bible. You take notes there, highlight them. All of these I will statements, there's seven of them. In verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the, <clears throat> under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, <clears throat> Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. These are a beautiful few verses. Excuse me. A beautiful few verses that speak of God's great plan of redemption. Certainly, specifically applied to the people of Israel, but also applied to even our lives today. And these are promises that we can hold on to. With Moses, he looks to the past and says, let me tell you the four things I've done. With Israel, he looks to the future and says, let me tell you seven things that I'm going to do. Seven promises of salvation. We'll read them again for us. The first, I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. The second, I will deliver you from slavery to them. The third, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. The fourth, I will take you to be my people. The fifth, I will be your God. The sixth, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to you. And then the seventh, I will give it to you for a possession or as a gift. Here God is speaking through Moses to Israel and he's piling up promise after promise after promise, seven of them. And these are no campaign promises either. These are not like, you know, if you elect me into office, you know, I'm going to do whatever everyone wants me to do. No, this is not a, a promise with, with no follow-up. This is a covenant from a covenant God who has never not come through. It says, I'll take you to be my people, just like Boaz needed to wait for the nearest kinsman redeemer to step down, that he might become the kinsman redeemer and save Ruth. So the Lord says, I will make you my people. I will draw near to you that I might be your kinsman redeemer, and I will give you the land. And again, it's not just that the land is something that you will just uh, be in or sojourn through. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in the promised land. But it wasn't theirs. It says even in this passage, they were just sojourners. But God says here in this promise that I, in this last one, I'm going to give this to you as a possession. I don't know if you're doing our scripture reading plan uh, with us. If you stuck through uh, Genesis and Exodus and it's, it's getting, it's, you know, I, I think I told you my daughter came to me in the first couple of weeks and said, man, there's some weird stuff going on in Genesis. There's this little passage in uh, Genesis 23 where these sojourners hadn't owned anything except this little cave. You remember that story? It's a curious story. So you wonder, why in the world are we spending the whole chapter talking about Sarah being dead and then buying a tomb for her in this, the cave of Machpelah? They're bartering how they're going to buy it and how much they're going to spend on it. And it's there because it signified their faith in the promise. We're going to buy this little cave here, this little barrier, burial site, because we believe that God's promise, he's promised us one day that we are going to actually own all of this land. They died holding on just to that one little piece of property. But God says and reiterates here 
that that's going to change. What liberating, freeing, rescuing, adopting, loving, lavishing good news this is. God says, I'm going to give you a better abiding possession. Now think of these seven promises that God made to the Israelites. And think how much greater the promises that God has made to us through Christ. To the Israelites, he says, I'm going to bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. But Jesus would say to us, I will make your yoke easy and your burdens light. To Israel, God says, I will deliver you from slavery to the Egyptians. But Christ to us says, I will deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, Hebrews 2. To Israel, God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. But Jesus says, I will redeem you from the power and the penalty of sin because I give my life for you as a ransom for many. To Israel, God says, I will take you to be my people, Israel. But Ephesians 2 says this, I will bring you near to me, you who are far off from me and alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. To Israel, God says, I will be your God. In Revelation 21, God tells us, I will dwell with you and you will be my people and I will be your God. To Israel, God says, I will bring you into the land that I promised to give to you. Jesus says, I will go and prepare a place for you. And I will come again and take you into myself that where I am there you may be also. To Israel, God says, I will give this land to you as a possession And Jesus says in Matthew 25, I will give you your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Our God loves to make promises. And as his people, we often struggle to believe them. You see what happens in verse 9? I find verse 9 to be an absolutely remarkable verse. It is, on the one hand, exceptionally sad. And on the other hand, it's amazingly tender and realistic. Look at verse 9 with me. Moses spoke. These are all the promises, these seven things. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Moses comes to them with all of these promises of redemption and liberating grace and freedom from slavery and the new land, and you're going to possess it, and God's going to be your God, and you're going to be his people, and this is all about to happen But they didn't listen to Moses. Why? Because their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. I think I have this on the screen. As one commentator put it, the I wills of salvation led to an I won't from God's people. I will, I will, I will, God says. The Lord says again and again, the people say, I don't believe you. They could not hear the promises of God because of their pain. They could not see through the suffering. All they could see was the suffering. You could translate the Hebrew word there literally. They didn't listen because of their shortness of breath. Or shortness of spirit. They're panting. They're out of breath. One commentator paraphrases it as the demoralization brought on by exhaustion. I'm sure that describes some of you, some of us. 
demoralization brought on by exhaustion. You ever felt that way? So tired, so beat down, so hurt that it's hard to believe the promises of God because of the current situation that we live in. You're too hurt to hear and too burdened to believe. It's all too human that we turn the I wills of God's salvation into the I wants of our unbelief. And maybe we pray as the man who came up to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think this is why Paul says we've got to get our eyes up, not focused on earthly things. It's why the psalmist says that we look up into the hills. Where does our help come from? For the hills. The psalmist also says, God's saying through them, be still and know that I am God. Be still and remember that I am God. That I am not incompetent. That I am not unloving or indifferent. That I am not ignorant. And that I have a plan and I'm working out that plan. This is why he tells us three times in this passage, four times really, he says, I am the Lord. In verse 2, and verse 6, and verse 8, and verse 29, I am the Lord. What does he mean? If you knew me, you would trust me, Moses. If you knew me, you would trust me, Luke. If you could begin to grasp all that that phrase means, I am the Lord. And maybe a lot of us, like the Israelites, were in verse 3, we knew God. We knew him as God Almighty. Maybe you know something about him. You know true things about him. Maybe you even have a kind of relationship with God, but it's incomplete. You know God in your head and in your good theology to be strong and powerful and mighty and sovereign. But you're struggling to believe and to know that he is strong, powerful, mighty, and sovereign for you. His child. Many of us have an orphan spirit. We've been adopted into the family, yet we're still living as an orphan. Let me remind you, if you do not know him, or at least in this moment you're struggling to experience him as our good father, that he's trustworthy, that he's good, that he loves you. He's concerned for you. Right now it says that Christ is standing before the Father as our advocate. He's our maker, our defender, our redeemer, our friend. Friends, do you know that God has promised us everything in Christ? It's what Ephesians 1 says, all the promises. I read this article by Kevin DeYoung this weekend in preparation for this and this phrase just stirred in my heart. I think I have it on the screen. Abraham knew the Lord as a promise maker. Moses knew him as a promise keeper. But we know the one in whom all the promises are yes and amen. Look at Romans chapter 8. Maybe you can flip over there. I have these on the screen. If you just want to listen, I can email these out to you if you'd like. All the promises for us in Jesus, and we'll close with this. 
chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. In Christ, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, Romans 8, 15. But we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 18, in Christ, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in Christ, we know that he who did not spare his own son, verse 32, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We sing this little phrase in the song a minute ago that Weston led us in, verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else and all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that an amazing promise? These Israelites are hearing this thing as they look to the future and I'm going to give you this possession but we're on the other side of that. Not only did they take the possession of the promised land and did God show himself faithful again and again and again and again. But even more than that, that the promise that God made in Genesis, that he was going to right what had been wrong through sin in the garden, that he was going to send this promise, see Jesus, for us. Isn't this what we, what, what, what we are thinking about and meditating on during Lent as we look toward this promise fulfilled? Not only did he send him, and this is what we celebrate during Advent, that God came to be with us, but Jesus said, himself that he was going to set his face like flint and head to Jerusalem and that weren't those weren't just words but he actually went and Jesus says that he was going to be killed and give his life as a ransom for many and he did that and Jesus said that he they wouldn't be able to keep him in the grave but in three days he would rise again and Jesus did that and we live on the other side of all of those promises and yet we don't see God immediately at work in our life and we begin to think that he's incompetent or that he's indifferent or that he's ignorant. Church, you have to fight with me against unbelief. That's really what the sin that exists in our hearts is the sin of unbelief. All of the promises in Christ are yes and amen. Church, he will remember his covenant to you. Every I will of divine promise ends up with an I did of gospel deliverance. God has not forgotten who you are. Let us not forget who he is. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, put it this way, it is profitable to place no confidence in ourselves. Our, all our sufficiency must be in the Lord. We never can trust ourselves too little or our God too much. Isn't that powerful? We can never trust ourselves too little or our God too much. I can do nothing by myself, said the Apostle Paul, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is Moses' fundamental problem. He can't take his eyes off himself. He, just like almost every other pastor or Christian leader, certainly myself, needs to preach to ourselves this very truth that we can never trust ourselves too little or our God too much. In order to see God do the incredible things, church, we have to walk by faith. Don't trust in your own strength. Don't trust in your own preaching. Don't trust in your own ability to cast vision or to start things and your own spiritual gifts. We've got to trust God. 
Our confidence must not be in ourselves, but in the one who says, I am the Lord. What does Romans 5 says that hope in God is never disappointed. Let us be the kind of people who put our hope and confidence in God, knowing that he never fails, even in the midst of our failures and our setbacks, our sovereign God reign. His reign is not threatened. His rule is not broken. His plan is not thwarted. He will do all that he purposes to do, even through our broken lives. Pray with me, please. God, as we pause just for a moment, and as we stand and sing here in just a few minutes, Lord, I pray that you would help us remember all that you've done in and through us. Lord, if we're honest, it's so easy to forget that you're at work, working out your sovereign plan of redemption. And Lord, in some weird way that does not make any sense to me, not, not even in the least, that you have called us, your church, broken, frail vessels to be the one that carries this good news, not only just to our workplaces and to our people of peace and to our neighborhoods, but to the very ends of the earth. And not just with even our lips, but with our life, that we would live as people who have a hope that is untouchable. No matter what the news says, or what threats come our way, what difficulty and darkness seems to be all around us. Father, that we would be people that believe Romans 5.5 with all of our heart, that to hope in you is never disappointed. Lord, that you would do something in and through us, that we wouldn't gather just for ritual, but you would raise up a people of faith anchored on your promises to us surrendered to your will partnering with you for all that you want to do in and through us Lord thank you for the truth of your word for all that Jesus is to us it's in your mighty name that we pray amen